0: Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and off to the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast, Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast about bizarre and unlikely hit songs. Uh, We have a very special guest that we're thrilled about and uh, very thankful for his time. Alex Goldman is here. Thanks for being here, Alex.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having We're me. We're going
0: to talk about uh, uh,
1: a hit song. Is it "Tub Thumping" by Chumbawumba?
0: <laughs> it's not, but that is far and away our most popular really? episode. That's very like,
1: funny. Like, uh, I just think of that as like, I remember I had this very, re- I had this friend in high school who was like super. He was like really into like revolutionary leftist politics. And he was like, you should check out this band Chumbawamba. Yeah. but They have an album called Pictures of Charving, Starving Children Sell Records. And I was like, oh, that's great. They sound like they're going to be awesome punks. And then it was like the most, I mean, I'm sure it's for some tastes because it's very popular, but like I found it to be absolutely like unlistenable. <laughs> I
0: it so is A lot of it sounds like sea shanties. Yeah, it's
1: really terrible.
0: That episode is like thousands more downloads than all of our other episodes thousands. Yeah, I don't know if people are just searching for it or what. The song we're going to talk about today, uh, I've been really excited to cover, and um, it's a dense story, but it's going to be super fun.
1: Okay, let's do it. And this is it. I can't hear it. <laughs> you can't hear it? I could identify it just by that weird, oh. weird burbling I could hear about.
2: Oh, there we go. There we go. There we go. Leo. Banger. Yeah. There we go.
1: You guys picked the right one, because I am a I am a big I'm a big enough Devo fan that I have an energy dome about six feet away. Oh, all right. I can, yes. I can put on if we <laughs> want to do it for the rest of the rest of the uh, thing.
0: So you'll you'll probably be familiar with a lot of this, but hopefully there's some there's some tidbits here and yeah. there. Uh
2: Theo, how familiar are you with Devo? I'm really not. I know of the band obviously and this video stands out to me, but I really I know no backstory, so I'm excited for this. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. All right. Wow. All right. Alex, feel free to chime in <laughs> on on any of the Devo lore. Um so this is Whip It by the high-minded post-punk synth-pop band Devo from Ohio.
2: See, I did not know they're from Ohio. Well, there you at go. All.
0: Well, we're going to talk about Ohio a lot.
1: It's like fundamental to their identity that they are from from Ohio. Mm. So I'm, I'm I'm total lemming here.
2: <laughs> Just feed me with info.
0: Uh, so the lineup of the band has changed many times throughout the years, but the core members are what some would <clears> call the <throat> classic lineup were brothers Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh. Mark sang and played keys while Bob played guitar and keys. And a second set of brothers, Gerald and Bob Casal. Gerald played bass and Bob played guitar and drummer. Alan Myers. So we have another brother band. We talked about the Proclaimers last I don't, time. I don't want to. So. I don't
1: want to be obnoxious, but I'm pretty sure it's Kasali.
0: Oh, he says it Casali. I'm pretty sure. All right, we're gonna say Kasali then. I've only been reading it, so that's great. So at one point early on, even Mark and Bob's other brother, Jim Mothersbaugh, was in the band. Um, and at a small for a small period of time, Fred Armisen played drums for them for a couple shows. Really? So they, they've had a. They've had a little bit of a revolving door, especially on the drums. Um
1: Yeah, the drummers have come and gone over the years. They had Alan Meyer, who was on their third album, is sort of like the most famous one, but he left uh the third album is the one that Whippets on. But he left pretty shortly after that, and then they've just kind of had I saw them perform once with this guy Josh Freeze, I think, who I know yes. who I know has played with like Tool and all kinds of crazy bands. Oh
0: yeah. Uh Josh Freeze was in the Vandals. Oh, or wow. I guess is still. Uh, and yeah, a perfect circle, the offset, I think he's in the offspring now, but Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh and Gerald Casale have always been in the band throughout all the up and downs. So those are the, those are the kind of the core three, uh, in the late sixties, Gerald was a student at Kent state university in Kent, Ohio, uh, 20 minute drive from Akron. Uh, at this point, the college had become according to Thomas M. Grace's book, Kent state death and descent in the sixties. Grounded in a tradition of student political activism that extended back to Ohio's labor battles of the 1950s, the vast expansion of the university after World War II brought in growing numbers of working class enrollers from the industrial centers of Northeast Ohio, members of the same demographic cohort that eventually made up the core of American combat forces in Vietnam. As the war's rising costs came to be felt acutely in the home communities of Kent students, tensions mounted between the growing anti-war movement on campus, the university administration, and the political conservatives who dominated the surrounding county as well as the state government. So kind of paints a picture of what's going on at the college. Jumping right. And yeah, during the period of intense political activism and artistic expression on campus, Gerald and his friend, another Bob, Bob Lewis, affectionately called Bob II in the Devo universe. He was only in the band for a year. They were making all kinds of satirical art from music to visual art to literature Gerald had also been playing in the Numbers Band, who were an influential experimental band in the area that featured future members of Pretenders and the Waitresses. Oh, wow. I didn't Um, know that. I didn't know that until I read it either. Uh, Gerald and Bob met Mark Mothersbaugh in 1907. Mark was a graffiti artist and a great keyboardist who was also going to Kent State, and he had a sharp yet dark sense of humor. He introduced them to an array of satirical and twisted underground art including Jocko Homo Heavenbound, which was a 1924 anti-evolution pamphlet. This special little piece of literature featured an illustration of a devil with the word D-evolution over it. The guys started using this phrase to describe their perception that humans had reached the peak of their evolution and were now starting to de-evolve. This was a bit of a joke to them and a way to describe some of the unprecedented events and trends happening in the mainstream in the 60s. Gerald said he'd felt American society was regressing. He shortened de-evolution to devo and started making satirical, humorous art and literature around the idea. Gerald chalked it all up to the failed promise of utopian progress peddled by post-World War II politicians and consumer culture.
2: Damn, their name is a lot deeper than I would have expected. <laughs> oh yeah, very.
1: They, they, wow. they had like a whole. They had like they were like putting out pamphlets. They had like this like. It had a very sort of church of the subgenius kind of aesthetic. Like they were all really into like thrift store crap. So it was like a lot of kitschy Americana, but Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of inverted enough that it was very dark and weird.
0: Yeah. And it was definitely on the more humorous side. And I think that continued throughout Devo's career, but uh, Devo soon became a more serious concept on May 4th, 1970. This was the day of the Kent state massacre. Named by many as The Day the 60s Died, along with the Altamont Disaster, where at the uh, Rolling Stones and Grateful Dead show, where the Hells Angels fought and killed several concertgoers. In a 2018 Vice story titled The Truth About Devo, America's Most Misunderstood Band, Andrea Dominic writes, On May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard opened fire on a crowd of unarmed Kent State University students protesting the U.S. military bombing of Cambodia. An art student named Gerald Casale was there, among chaos, running to escape the miasma of tear gas and bullets as two of his friends, Allison Krause and Jeffrey Miller, succumbed to gunshots from an M1 rifle. The incident, which left a total of four dead and nine injured, would go down in history as a cultural loss of innocence, a particularly harrowing example. Of American political and social unrest during the Vietnam War, it also marked the birth of Devo, the band and multidisciplinary project that Casali would start with a cast of friends impacted by the shooting in the months that followed. Uh, I should also note that Thomas M. Grace, who wrote the book about Kent State that I mentioned earlier, was also shot in the massacre, but he survived to write the book, and he is a professor at Kent State to this day.
1: Wow, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, I only read excerpts, but I'd like to read the whole book. It seems, it seems, uh,
1: you can't get a better first, you can't get a better, uh, author of a book about Kent State than the guy who got shot in Kent State.
0: Yeah, he's kind of been there his whole life throughout it all. Um, Kent State understandably shut down until the fall, and Gerald and Mark retreated to Akron and hung around at Mark's parents' house. They spent their time making art in all formats and media, including music. They started using a Moog synthesizer to try to capture the dystopian sound of things falling apart. Something that Mark said that stuck with me uh, from his and Gerald's book, Devo Unmasked, is when they shot and kill people for protesting, we were like, wow, I guess you can't really change things like that. Because if it gets too real, they're going to stop you. So how do you change things? Subversion. That's how. Who does it best? Madison Avenue. They get people to buy things that are bad for them every day. That's what they wanted to do. Use aversion to sell people things that they don't know they want. And while I wish I had time to dissect the entire ethos and thesis of Devo, I think that sums it up right there. Making a multimedia experience that's fun and funny and wild to make a point to try to improve their world. After recruiting the rest of the lineup, which even took a number of forms before their debut album would be recorded, Devo started playing around the Midwest and picking up fans everywhere they played. They cut two songs for a single, including Jocko Homo, which was named for that anti-evolution pamphlet where they got their name. I think we should watch the music video for this song. Uh, this is prior to music videos being on TV, but they had made this as part of a larger film called The Truth About de
1: I've got it on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, for Theo's enjoyment, got it. Um, the uh, also uh, there is a there's just like this weird noisy synthesizer sound that's in the middle of that movie about five minutes in that it's sampled for Justice. You know the band Justice. Yeah, yeah. They have Love a justice. they have a song. They have a song that samples "Night on Bald Mountain." That uh, that classical piece. Yeah. And uh, there's this sort of like weird synthesizer grunting that they stole from this video. I
0: had no idea. That's amazing.
1: When I first heard it, I was like, I know that! <laughs> um, yeah.
0: I love when that happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: We've had a lot of times on here where we're like, oh my god, I had no idea that that's what that was.
1: Oh, we are men. We are
0: Theo, you oh, may we are have her- heard this, but... The, the mantra uh, in the song is is very famous. Uh, are we not
2: men? We are Devo. I mean, this video is wild
1: Right. They were constantly one of the th- one of the ideas was people weren't devolving into apes so much as they were devolving into what they called spuds. They constantly refer to people the devolved people as spuds. They constantly call themselves spud boys. They have a song called "I'm a Potato." Like it's all about how they're very stupid and got like there's like. Sort of this weird current about having eyes all around because they're just idiots that gawk like like many-eyed potatoes. Like it's a it's a whole thing.
0: Has anybody started a band called Spud Boys?
1: I have no idea, but that's a great idea.
0: Devo tribute band or not? <laughs> so get get the idea here. I think of Chaka Homo and early Devo. I think it's important to hear some early Devo. Um, the other song the single was a cover of Johnny Rivers 1966 single Secret Agent Man um, which is actually it's a pretty gnarly cover um, it sounds nothing like no not at all like, like it, the, you could the after I Secret think Agent I listened Man. to it like halfway through the first time I heard it I was like okay I see what's going on um, the film The Truth About Devolution," won the Ann Arbor Film Festival and somehow David Bowie saw the film and then uh, because he'd seen the film He went to go see them play at famed punk venue, Max's Kansas City in New York. And Bowie was so enamored of Devo that he agreed at the show to produce their next album. He even introduced them at the show, and there's video of this. Alex, have you seen this? No. I couldn't believe this existed.
1: This is their third encounter with a New York audience, and they're the D-evolution band, Devo.
2: Right? That is super cool. Bowie
0: introduced their music and art to a bunch of his friends, including Iggy Pop and Brian Eno, and called them the band of the future and helped them score a deal with Warner Brothers Records. Bowie, unfortunately, ended up having to film a movie during Devo's studio time, so Brian Eno took over production duties. However, Bowie would help out on weekends and is uncredited on the album. Uh, Devo's debut album, Q, Are We Not Men, A, We Are Devo, (laughs) came out in 1978. They played Ladies Saturday Night Live Divo. later that year, a week after The Rolling Stones, so naturally they covered Satisfaction on SNL a week after The Rolling Stones played. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't a hit at the time, but the opening song on the album, Uncontrollable, or Uncontrollable Urge, has become an iconic song in punk canon, has been featured in countless films, and for good reason, because it positively rips. It's one of my favorite songs of the era.
2: I'm yeah, so, so diva uncultured over
0: here. I feel like you're going to get really into Devo after this. I definitely will.
1: I mean, if you only know the one big song, you think like, oh, these guys are novelty." But they go so fucking hard.
2: They do. They really do. Yeah, like, I'm totally digging this. does not sound familiar, though.
0: So there's a whole blind spot for me. You're probably going to watch a movie soon and hear it. And you're like, oh, that's that Devo song. Yeah, this is great. Devo followed up the album with Duty Now for the Future in 1979. It didn't spawn a hit, but the band continued to play on TV, and K Rock LA even put out a Devo tribute album. Devo was officially a cult phenomenon, yet they didn't have any major hit songs.
1: The first couple albums, I feel like "Duty Now for the Future" and "Are We Not Men? We Are Devo" are very guitar-oriented albums with, like, uh, with like synthesizer sort of like uh, accompaniment. There's like weird synthesizer noises, but yeah. it's really guitar-based. Yeah, it flourishes, and then. It was. It wasn't until it. I, it wasn't until their third album that like they really leaned into like synth melodies and sort of the things that you think of when you think of Devo. Um, and their second album actually like their first album is pretty poppy in a very weird way, and then their second album is like really like grungy, like punky. I, I think it's very underappreciated, and there are no songs that are. They're all oh young yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way that I like quite a bit. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Well, they, they, there is a studio version of Secret Agent Man. On oh, yeah, that's right. Smart that's Patrol, funny. Mr. DNA, which is a... Oh, Mr. DNA is, is part of a series, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. total rager, but it's, like, not... It's not friendly. <laughs> it's like they'll have a song and you're like, oh,
0: man, this could be a total jam, and there's just some, like, weird synth sound in the middle that's in a different key. Something channel.
1: so discordant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So... Mark Mothersbaugh was looking back on on their, uh, on their this era of the band and was saying that some people really got it. And there are a lot of people who it was upsetting to them. <laughs> he said, I think Rolling Stone, the first time they wrote about us, it said something like, they call us rock and roll. There's a couple of songs that don't even have real drums. And there's two songs that don't even have a guitar. And he said, they're putting like a bunch of exclamation points in it. Like, this doesn't have guitars. It's not rock and roll. And he's like, we never said we were rock and roll, we're just a band. <laughs> uh, and then he said that early on in their time at Warner Brothers, um, they really didn't have a concept of who Devo was or why they were doing this and they didn't really care. So they said, okay, here's our plan for Devo. We're going to do life-size cutouts of you guys because you look so weird, you know, in your yellow suits. We're going to put them in every record store. And they were like, can't we make that? use that money to make a film about the songs? And they were like what do you do with that? Nobody watches films about songs because music videos like weren't a thing. And they said, it's the stupidest idea we've ever heard. So uh, on the duty now for the future tour, their second album, uh, they were playing at the Palladium in in New York and Warner sent an A&R guy out and the band's getting dressed and putting on their costumes and their tour manager comes in and says, Hey guys, I was just in this conversation with the A&R guy, bad news if this next record doesn't have a hit on it, it's your last record. Don't worry about the contract. They're going to breach it, and they'll invite us to sue them. So they aren't going forward with your five-album deal because they don't like duty now for the future. And I love that they told the tour manager, this poor guy.
1: That's a really horrible thing to have to tell your band.
0: Before they go on stage.
1: (laughs) Seriously.
0: Uh, I should also note that during this era... On this tour, Devo would frequently open for themselves as a Christian soft rock band called Dove, Dove, which is an anagram of Devo. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Have you seen it, Alex? Is there any recordings of that?
1: And it's just them. It's like them in, you know, in like long white robes and talking about love and this and that. And It's very, it's very wild. Oh, that's amazing. Um, So
0: if Warner wasn't already off put by them, they were doing that.
1: (laughs) Some of the decisions that they have made as musicians are fucking baffling. They put out, like in the mid to late 80s, they put out an album called the Easy Listening Disc. And it was just elevator music versions of all their hits. And it's horrible, like unpleasant to listen to, unless you're like a deep, deep fan. I don't even like that. And if you ever, if you ever look at interviews and they're like, what was the favorite, what was your favorite album you ever worked on? And they're like, oh, Easy Listening Disc. Easy. Not even, it's not even a, a question. Are they I just like punk and soul?
0: I mean, probably because they were, they were getting to do something different and probably use some different instrumentation and I don't know it sounds kind of fun for them <laughs> <laughs> yeah for them <laughs> in October 1979 Devo headed to Record Plant Studio in Hollywood to work on their third album Freedom of Choice the recording was considerably more electronic save for the drums which remained acoustic and Bob Mothersbaugh's guitar pushing them further into synth pop as heard in the opening song you may know Video. if you don't know it, you're going to know it after listening to it on repeat
2: after this, because this is like
1: yeah, one
0: of sun, my favorite the sun,
2: songs.
1: This song's baller.
2: This one definitely sounds more familiar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this song. Got the energy domes.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't say what an energy dome was. Devo. if you know anything about them, you know they have the big red hats. Yeah. They called those energy domes. Yeah, um, sure. And apparently they were they were based on um, like Art Deco wall sconces. And they were like, oh, those would be cool hats. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think
0: I knew that. Uh, according to a 2022 interview with Peter Kasathy for Consequence of Sound, Gerald said, this was the only song the label was interested in. They said this was the one. This is about Girl You Want. This is their last shot to make Devo work. They put all their eggs in that basket and spent a bunch of money on it. And they put all their money on black. Guess what? It stiffed. And we don't understand why it did. It wasn't like we didn't like that song as we did. It sounded very digestible, very accessible, but it just didn't catch. So it wasn't hit at the time, but it did become one of the band's most famous songs. We'll get into a little bit of why in a minute. But another huge reason is because it's been covered by a ton of notable artists. Robert Palmer, Soundgarden, Superchunk, The Mummies, Freelance Whales, and a number of other
1: artists. That is so weird. Uh, I had no idea. So, you know mm-hmm. Tony Basil, who did like, uh, uh, oh Mickey. Yeah, we
0: did we did an episode about that on song.
1: her first album. Maybe it's not her first album. On one of her albums, she was dating Mark Mothersbaugh for a while, and she.
0: I wondered what the connection there was because her name came she up. She covered
1: times. on her albums a couple of early non-album Devo cuts, like non-major release Devo. I cuts.
0: feel like we so, might have like, mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. I think that came up on the episode.
1: I totally forgot about that. that. And like they're playing it on the album, they're playing the songs, and it's just her singing over them. It's very weird, but also great. I mean, she's awesome. So,
0: (laughs) oh, they they do play on it. I'm totally. That was like uh, one of our first episodes, and I I forgot about that because I kept seeing her name, and then I did see that Mark Mother's Bob, maybe Bob too, uh, like art directed some of her music Mm -hmm. videos. I could see the connection because she's also like a zany, like subversive, real weirdo. Notably, uh, at least for for my my part of the nerd Venn diagram, the music video for Girl, Girl You Want features Dogtown skateboarding star Stacy Peralta and Tony Alba. And even that didn't work in the early 80s. About? I don't know. But <laughs> if the, the fact that they had a great song and those guys were in the video when it was like the peak of the Dogtown craze and it didn't work, <laughs> it's just really funny to me. When they did Freedom of Choice, uh, they said that that was like, just a song on the record that's why they named the record Freedom of Choice and uh, they, they weren't trying to focus on that as a theme or anything they just liked the title and uh, and then Mark was like and then it kind of turned into us naming the album on purpose because the label was like telling us what singles to release and they actually didn't have the Freedom of Choice <laughs> so then they kind of named the album I mean that's that. the
1: that's the theme of the song right the theme of the song is Freedom of Choice is what you have which is like a choice between right. two shitty options like capitalism and poverty. Right. And, the, and the, the refrain is freedom from choice is what you want. Yeah, exactly. So
0: like that was just a song that they liked. I was saying the album that, and then once they started dealing with the record label, they were like, oh, we have a thing going here now with this. It wasn't just the instrumentation that was different about the band on this album. Uh, Gerald and Mark were listening to a lot of R&B at the time. The band picked Robert Morgaleff, to produce the album because he was famous for his synthesizer work with Stevie Wonder. They're also listening to a ton of Prince and the Gap Band. And they specifically mentioned this song as a huge influence on this album. And I actually hear a lot of this influence in Whip It in particular. It's Gap Band. You dropped a bomb on me.
1: Oh, the best fucking song. It's such a great song. <laughs> the synth on that song is so... It's like the... Everybody talks about, like, the best, the best, like, Moog sound. The best thing about the Moog sound is, like, how fat it sounds. And I've never heard right. a synth fatter than the synth on you drop them on. It's as thick as it comes. It's
0: so good. This song is is just eternally badass. This is it's so great. Uh, and I actually, I can hear it. Like, I'm like, yeah, I can hear where Devo is listening to this. Totally makes sense. Oh, totally. In the Consequence interview I mentioned, Gerald said the band and producer made little choices pulled from R&B throughout the album where like they'd have a drum beat that was just like a standard Devo drum beat. And they were like, well, why don't we like give it a backbeat or why don't we change it up a little bit so it sounds more like disco or it sounds more like Prince? And they just kind of started making these little choices where now when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, I can totally hear all the R&B on here, which I never would have considered when listening to Devo before I read, read this. Um, And they notably started using a mini Moog bass keyboard that they played on a strap instead of a bass guitar. That's so fucking cool.
2: (laughs) You know what that is? That is the sound of me cracking a delicious Sierra Nevada. Tis the season to celebrate with friends and family, so grab yourself a six-pack of Sierra Nevada's Celebration Brew to bring to your next holiday gathering. Or maybe grab a six-pack of their classic pale ale. Maybe their Hazy Little Thing IPA. Maybe the Dankful IPA. Heck, maybe even one of their Hard Kombucha Strange Beasts. They're all good. Thanks for our friend, De Sierra Nevada, for sponsoring the show. And thanks to our listeners for supporting them. Cheers.
0: Gerald continued about this R&B influence and said, oh my God, Prince. Prince is what really did it for us. We actually saw him at some place that had been a roller rink at the corner of La Cienega Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard in LA in 79, when he still hadn't really broken through, but Warner... We were on the same label as him. We were invited to the show down there, and Prince comes out in a Burberry beige trench coat, bikini underpants, garter belts, and hose, and six-inch high heels, and nothing else. And he <laughs> starts doing songs from Controversy before it was released. And here we were as artists just blown away. We were jealous. It was amazing. They said they were listening to it, and we just like, this is so good.
1: God, who could blame them? That is... <laughs> I have never been I've never had been at a place where I'm like, oh I'm at a musical moment that is emerging. That has never happened to me.
0: I, I'm sending along Prince Controversy just because they mentioned that song and I was like, that's another song that I could hear influencing Devo. Wild synth sounds, four on the floor beat. Definitely.
2: And Prince and Prince looks like a total punk rocker in the video.
1: I don't think I've ever seen the video.
2: Even the lyrics like rhythm is much more like choppy, punk rock-esque. Mm-hmm. There you go. He's getting yeah. some melody here, but in the beginning there, it does sound very Ego-esque. And the lyrics are very, like, socially ethereal, which I feel like kind of works
0: with, with Devo as well. Great song. Well, this brings us to our topic at hand. All right. Whip It. Whip It came about from about four different cassette tapes at different times that were recorded by various members of the band throughout a two-week period. Uh, and they were, like, sketches that eventually become the composition uh but they were all in different bpm's and different instrumentations so like if you if you you know if we had those recordings we probably would not be able to put them together and say that's whip it um but the chorus to whip it was a piece that uh gerald had done with a keyboard running through some harmonizing detuner uh and it was not in four four which the song is in uh and that's the part where he basically was like, oh, I think we have something here. This is really cool. Uh, and he was trying to make an abstract, like classical music piece. Uh, oh, I can hear that and then in the just, chorus. Yeah, I can hear it too. Yeah, for sure. He says that Alan then came up, their drummer at the time, came up with the famous beat, uh, which he was like, oh, it's so cool and strange. It's like jazz meets disco. Like it's perfect. And he, he says that Alan's a human metronome and it was just, you know, so perfectly syncopated.
1: I have definitely However, in my life, uh, in my musical life, stolen that drum beat many, many times because it's way easier <laughs> than coming up with a good,
0: like your own I don't think leg. you're alone. The open hi-hat makes it. It's like if it were closed, it wouldn't sound as cool, but it just like fills out the yeah, song. Yeah, totally. However, kind of contrary to what uh, Gerald said, uh, in Evie Nagy's 2015 book from the 33 and a Third series about Devo's freedom of choice, It states that the drum beat grew out of another collaboration with Captain Beefheart drummer Robert Williams, who shared a house not far from Mark with Gogo's drummer Gina Shock. Mark said, I didn't really have a good set of drum loops or drum machines, so what I used to do is lug my tape recorder with me over to my friend Robert's house. The Go-Go's would rehearse there and Captain Beefheart rehearsed there. I would take my tape recorder, play a drum beat and get Robert to play it for like four minutes on a tape so I could write music to oh, it. Wow. So he was the first person that played the Whippet drum beat and he played it without any music. Mm. And then Alan added the fills and made the quick, the quick rhythms in it. Kind of a contradictory story to what Gerald said, but also it sounds like it was very much a collaborative song written with the whole band. So I kind of understand that. Um, this part blew my mind. Furthermore, in uh, Evie Nagy's book, Gerald goes on saying that uh, when Mark came to the table with his part, which was the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, he said, oh, I've had this for like six months. And they were like, are you serious? This is amazing. And he said, oh yeah, it's just pretty woman cut in half. <laughs> oh. Like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It's just dun-dun-dun-dun-dun.
1: It totally is. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So Mark had been living with his brother at the house of Bob's girlfriend's mother sure. <laughs> who rented him a small bedroom while not on tour and torn writing music. And he said he was just in that room listening to Roy Orbison like, over and over, <laughs> and over and over again, which sounds really sad. Uh, and then he started thinking about like taking apart the songs because they were so well-constructed. And he was like, so I just took the riff and started playing it and I just chopped it in half and kept repeating it. And then that ended up being like, the main piece of whipping—that's oh, crazy, yeah. Uh, and they also have mentioned that they have always thought that the guitar part, which like grows throughout the song, uh, is one of the least cool guitar parts to be in a hit song. And they're like, <laughs> "But it kind of works because Devo is decidedly not cool."
1: Oh yeah, I mean the first the the first song on the on the subsequent album from this one is called "We're Through Being Cool."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they talked about putting everything together they obviously needed lyrics and um the Whippet lyrics kind of already existed but not for a song and uh gerald basically just like brought them to the table and was like hey like i could sing this there mark could sing that there bob can shout this part so they're just like create collaborating freely on the song and of that time uh gerald said when you're a band that's collaborating freely, when there's no real hierarchical politics, when you're sharing this information, great things can happen, and that's when the best stuff gets made. So no, no egos in the room here when they're making Whippet. And as far as the lyrics go, uh, Alex, I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Theo, do you know what the song's about?
2: I have no idea. Never really. Do knew. you have any
0: guesses? I think.
2: I don't know. No, I don't. I really don't. I think when I was a kid, I kind of just thought it was like Whippets. <laughs> and uh, just ran with that. No, it's not <laughs> at all. It's not about. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I've never what it's thought about, about that. <laughs> but I think of the kid. That's what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> it's not. Well, most people assumed that it was about S&M or masturbation, which is somewhat lazy. You know, I think to just assume that, but I also get it, especially
1: if you've seen the music video. I recently showed the video to my kids. Uh, and I was like, eh, should I have done this? <laughs> I had forgotten the degree to which that video that makes is sense. just is just a cowboy whipping the clothes off of a woman. Uh yep. we
0: will shortly discuss why the video is that. Um so Gerald said he had these lyrics already and for about six months they're just sitting around. Um and he said they're not rock and roll lyrics at all. And uh, he wrote them because he'd been reading Thomas Pynchon's book, Gravity's Rainbow. And in it, uh, Thomas had created all these poems and limericks that were satires of American exceptionalism, like, you're number one, you're special, it's only you, you can do it. And it was this whole like propaganda of America, um, and kind of lampooning that and capitalism. Uh, and he thought they were so funny. So he started writing lyrics that sounded like them. And he was also pulling things from communist propaganda posters at the same time, kind of juxtaposing it. Um, and in uh, Nagy's book that I mentioned, uh, she said, well, be, certainly be consistent with Devo's methods to include a knowing double entendre. They're adamantly ambivalent about the common misunderstanding, which both goosed the song's popularity and made it ever more clear that the masses would never quite get what they're trying to do. And Mark says, we actually wrote it as a you-can-do-it Dale Carnegie pep talk for President Carter. What? <laughs> we were afraid that Republicans were going to get in there in 1980, and they sounded very nasty at the time. They're running this guy, Ronald Reagan, that seemed like a total... He seemed like he didn't even have a brain. We were like, how could that be our president? That's impossible that they choose him to be our president. So they were writing the music that was like, you-can-do-it, Mr. President Oh, Carter. wow! And then... They're doing all these interviews at the time, and they'd have to get up at like 7 a.m. and be on a morning talk show on the radio or whatever. And uh, he, they were like, the the jockeys would just be like, you know, I whipped it the other yeah. day. <laughs> and they were like, these assholes have no idea what this song is about. And it really pissed them off.
2: So there, there's a role in Congress called the whip, who is there to force people into That's different <laughs> positions of their party. So this this song is way more political than it is SMN. Wow.
0: I didn't know till now. And I've listened to lots of Devo in my life. I never knew the the political that I knew that Devo is always kind of this social political thing, but I never knew that Whip It in particular. I of thought it was like a dumb joke. I didn't know it was a pep talk for President Carter.
1: <laughs> I honestly didn't know that either. That, that would not have been,
0: been details, my guess,
2: clearly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's absurd. <laughs> wow. I must mention that the whipping sounds in the song, the iconic whipping sounds, uh, Devo and Robert Morgaleff, the the producer, they used an EML ElectroComp 500 synthesizer, uh, Newman KM84 and U87 condenser mics, and a lot of space. So there's a long hallway at the record plant where they recorded it that was actually outdoors between two buildings and only three and a half feet wide. So they used that hallway to play the synthesizer out loud, and it was very reverberant, and it sounded like a whip crack. So that's what they used they used in the song and they recorded the vocals in there too. So they, they sounded like they were whipping back and forth. That's why they have that. Like the reverb is real. It's in that hallway. It's very cool. Interesting. Gerald had said that, uh, on the tour for freedom of choice, um, they kind of had this foregone conclusion that this was it. This is our last shot to a big tour with tour support from a label. Who's pushing our record. They're like, girl, you want has failed. This is our last hurrah. This is it. We're going to play 200, 300 cap rooms. It'll be fun. It's been a great ride. They make the joke about Girl You Want that I thought was great, that they're like, you know that if Axl Rose covered it, it would have been a number one hit. (laughs) It's not wrong. (laughs) No, not wrong. I kind of hear it working. Uh, So while they're on that tour, a radio DJ named Kyle Rudman in Florida who was a regional programmer who had a lot of power had some morning report sheet that went out to all the disc jockeys in the southeastern US so it's you know there's those guys like regionally who uh, they they're kind of the gatekeepers that can get it to all these other stations and influence other music directors so he was just a devo fan and he listened to the record and made notes about every song and he said whip it is an incredible song so he started playing it Without Warner's involvement. No bribes, no payola, nothing. And he then he got his friends to play it at all these other stations. So like Florida and Georgia is really where Whippet started to hit the wow. radio, which is hilarious. Yeah, it's not really where you expect. But I could also hear it playing in like Athens, Georgia. You know, like that, that totally Oh yeah, I guess sense. that's true.
1: It's like the early REM pylon. Yeah. B-52s there. B-52s, era.
0: yep. Uh, and once it hit New York City airwaves, they had to stop the tour and reconfigure the whole thing and rebook bigger oh, rooms. wow. Because it was was getting too big. And by the time they were done with the American tour, the song was on the charts. And that's when Warner said, you guys should do a video. (laughs) After they had told them, no more videos. (laughs) Uh, They were like, okay, like, why do you now want us to do this? And they said, there is a music video channel that's going to be on cable soon. And we think you should make a video for It' so that they can play it. So- they made the music video in one day, uh, and they were so annoyed by the masturbation and S <laughs> assumptions about the song that they ran with the S and M theme to absurd <laughs> extremes. But Theo, you said you're familiar, uh, yeah. but probably probably worth a little little watching.
2: Been here. a while, but
0: I absolutely remember this video. So that's the reason that it's so over the top. Like they're literally whipping people's clothes off. It's it's not to be crass or misogynistic it's because they were so pissed off that everybody has seen the song was about that they're like fine here's what you want take it
2: yeah i guess i always figured they were (laughs) doing it on purpose like purposely you know not caring but they really just didn't care who came up with the idea to do a country theme
1: my guess is like i i feel like they they think that they have like a very low estimation of sort of uh classic uh American tropes of masculinity. Yes. And I think that they're making fun of uh, that notion. Yes. of uh, That yeah, sort of general concept of what makes a man.
2: Which uh, Ronald Reagan would have been coming from making movies right. in the Western sense. Yes.
0: So, absolutely. Exactly what Alex has said, but through the lens of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, th- the idea for it came from a, a 1962 issue of The Dude magazine oh yeah,, which revolved around a former stunt man who marries a stripper and moves to a dude ranch in Arizona uh, for awesome. entertainment for entertainment that he would use a whip to remove the clothes from his wife, who would remain unhurt, oh wow, and mother's boss said it was so stupid and so low we had to do it <laughs> uh, and uh, the video was a reaction to President Ronald Reagan's previous career as a Hollywood cowboy. And they wanted to make a video that satirized both the cowboy mythos and right-wing racist values.
1: Uh,
0: and the whip, in the video, the whip does not strike the clothes. They were tied to a fishing line and pulled away from each whip crack. Wow.
2: This video yeah. is doing a lot more work than I thought it was.
0: Yeah, right? Amazing.
2: Uh I, I totally agree.
0: Uh, and they are wearing, obviously, the energy, the energy domes. But yeah, uh, Casale said um, we thought it was an absurd satire. It was humor. We were seeing videos where there was definite sexism where it was serious like Rod Stewart videos and others with hair metal bands grabbing a woman's ass while she was in skin tight PVC pants. Then they were labeled as misogynistic because people didn't get the <laughs> jokes. Course, they yeah, didn't understand. And it was, it was banned in a few countries. It was never banned from MTV. Um, and Lily Tomlin used to have a late night show called The Midnight Special. And Devo was supposed to perform. And you know, she is a fierce famous feminist and she's awesome but she saw the video didn't get the joke and said she refused to host the show unless Devo was cut oh no wow oh geez (laughs) they didn't even get to explain themselves within a month mtv was on the air and this was one of the first videos they played and it exploded and mtv asked them for all of their videos and they started playing girl you want uncontrollable urge and several of the other videos from the Devo catalog. So that's one, another one of the reasons why those those two songs became even more popular, but were never really like radio hits. After Whip It, Mark, mother's boss, said about their major label experience, we knew we were stepping into a sewer. We didn't know how bad it stunk. It was tough. We were never 100% happy with anything that was going on. And even when we finally had a song that did get hit radio play, Whip It, it seemed like that worked against us because all of a sudden, you know, we were this band. It was almost like a cartoon where you'd be in the studio working on something and all of a sudden Joe Schmo from Warner Brothers Head would pop up and say, hey, how are you guys doing? You need anything? Just want to remind you, you can do anything you want. Anything you want. Just ride another Whippet. It. it was obviously <laughs> weren't getting it and we were never taken very seriously. Oh, man. So that's essentially Whippet and how it got famous. Um, where do we think Whippet peaked on the Billboard Hot 100?
1: Well, that's a tough question. I'm going to say number one. I was going to say number one Ooh. as well.
2: It feels like a runaway hit, especially with MTV getting started right as they they come out with this video. I love that
0: you both guessed number one because I think that just shows the like the staying power we've like, had like in it? our in our cultural consciousness. Number fourteen, still really right. high for oh, a man. concept band about the regression of humankind. <laughs> Fair one. When you put it in that lens.
1: I mean, <laughs> the freedom of choice is also like the apex of their musical I think yeah. it's like it's like as good as they get and then they started start tumbling downhill after that one.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think perhaps because of Whippet and that they wanted to like really show people who they were, they like I could probably find a nicer way to say this but started to become kind of a caricature themselves a little
1: bit after it. Yeah, they decided to get they decided to get weirder but not in a cool way, <laughs> like in a bad way.
0: <laughs> I will say that 2010 album has some jams on it. That's got it. That's got a few. I don't. Few I haven't listened to it. It's pretty good. It's been coming up on my listening while I've been researching this. Just to give you an idea of what's going on on pop music, which I think makes this even crazier that this song made it to number fourteen, uh, is number thirteen. Uh, and this is when it first hit number fourteen, November fifteenth, nineteen eighty. That was after it already been on the chart for three months. So after that, radio guy had played it. MTV's playing it. It's climbing slowly. Number 13 is You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Daryl Hall and John Oates. We've got The Jacksons doing Lovely One. Number 10, uh, John Lennon starting over. Um, More Than I Can Say, Leo Sayers at number nine. We have Pointer Sisters, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross. Another One Bites the Dust Queen is number four. Uh, Donna Summers got The Wonderer at number three. Barbara Streisand's number two.
1: With what? Uh... Woman in Love. The, so it's so funny to me that the rest of the song, most of the songs you have just said, I'm just like I have no clue what that
0: is. <laughs> I think uh, most of them you would know if you heard it, um, and some of okay. them are just like you know the songs we'll never talk about in this podcast because like this song's famous because they were so famous at the time they released it and it was it. Like there's no story here. Um, yeah, totally. And sometimes it wasn't always their best song. People were just like, "We love Barbara Streisand. This song's <laughs> great." For, what was number one? Yep. <laughs> speaking of a force it was kenny rogers lady so like a sappy saccharine ballad at number one and then fucking whippets at number 14
2: (laughs) yeah there's no way they were getting number 10 or top 10 at that point
0: i mean this is true subversion this is this is like what they were talking about you know they they've entered this this uh upper echelon of artists doing this song that's like nobody knows what it's actually about
1: I mean, it, it after uh, sort of the decline of Devo, late 80s, early 90s, I mean, Mark Mothersbaugh, especially, but also Jerry Casale, they went into, like, uh, composing music for commercials mm-hmm. and shit like that. And yeah. they constantly, I mean, I don't know how much this is true, but they constantly talk about trying to, like, put, like, weird, unsettling musical themes within a Burger <laughs> King commercial. or um, yeah. Like, what... like. So Swiffer approached them and were like, hey, can we do a version of Whip It? But it's called Swiffer. And they were like, absolutely, only if we are the ones who are going to record it. We have to record it. And they were like, this weird anti-American sort of like... Uh, You know, this 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 uh, song that had this incredibly critical uh, anti Reagan video (laughs) and uh, these these like sadomasochistic undertones like we're doing it now as a as a commercial for a mop. (laughs) Like what could be more subversive? Hey, man, everyone needs clean floors, right? I
2: mean, that's truly
0: what what Mark was talking about. That that's what Madison Avenue was doing. They were selling people things they didn't know that they wanted or needed and trying to send a message. So they were just like co-opting
2: that from from the ad agencies. We Um, won't put our ad break in right here.
1: Can you (laughs) imagine being the the guys the guys who are like, hey, society's getting stupider in nineteen seventy and then being alive in twenty twenty and being able to (laughs) being able to be like,
0: Oh, I have thoughts from them on that that I will share.
1: (laughs) I mean I can't wait. I mean, it's hard not to be able to point to stuff and be like, Look how prescient we were, but fuck, look how prescient they were. It's wild, man. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the the history, like the um, history of America at this time, it's like You know, we're a couple decades out from like, you know, the Public Works Administration, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing electricity to the entire country and all of these sort of like huge social projects that, you know, are trying to improve literacy, improve connection and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden the rot starts to set in. And there's a couple of people who are just like, hey, guys, shit's bad and it's getting worse. (laughs) And everybody else is like, whatever, there's fast food. <laughs> all of all
0: of that exceptionalism and progress and industrial uh, accomplishments all coalesced into Devo in 1977.
1: I mean, you know, they, they all they were like they were from Akron, which is just like a town that was hollowed yep. out by, you know, the the uh, industry leaving the United States. Rubber it's is really... Akron
0: the rubber town, right? I think, I think so. it is like tires and stuff. What's well, the use of an energy dome if you don't have any energy? Well, our friends at Dark Matter Coffee can help you out with that. Head to their website at darkmattercoffee.com and use code cast for free shipping on their intellectually honest, delicious coffee. Covers. There are a number of covers, uh, as you would imagine. With oh, a song as iconic as this. Although we've had some iconic songs no one has covered, because why would you? But this one. Gonna bring up somebody that's come up on like half of our episodes. Moby. No, I've Moby's heard back.
1: Yes. It's like super, it's like super sludgy and slow. It's, it's
0: yeah. It's kind of tight. I kind it's of like, like a, it's like a stoner metal version. Yeah. The early movie? Uh, yeah, 96. Oh, okay. It was the yeah,
1: B-side. Okay. I remember hearing it in high school. So it must have been
0: yeah, bad. it was a B-side Uh, to Come On Baby. Oh, wow. It was like one of, one of his early club hits. This is it this is it took me a minute to find that actually, because that's not on like streaming or anything. Um, uh,
1: I, I only know it. Because I haven't heard it in 25 years, but someone put it on a mixtape for me, so. Hell yeah. Yeah, so that's how <laughs> I know it.
2: I love that. That's, that's a deep I mean, cover. If for... you played this for me and said, who is this? I would have not a guessed Moby. That's wild.
1: I've always thought, like, maybe I should uh, go and do a cover. Like, if I were to do, like, a Halloween cover band, I was like, maybe I'd do Devo. But then, like, I'd probably be the person playing guitar, and I can't play guitar <laughs> like Bob 2. Bob 2 is fucking way too good at <laughs> guitar for me. Uh,
0: and we do, when applicable, have a segment on here called the Kids Corner when there is a kids' version of a song, Kids Bop or whatnot. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Didn't they do it? Didn't Devo do an album where they had kids sing all their songs? I don't know. Did they? I'm pretty oh, sure what? they did a ver- Hold on just a second. That's not what I was about to say. Devo, kids. Devo 2.0 was a pop group quintet created by Walt Disney with the participation of Devo of child actors who sing, oh dance, God. and, what? in the music videos and photo shoots, mind-playing instruments along to songs re-recorded by some of the original members of Devo. Jerry Casali directed all nine of their music oh. videos.
0: I miss this.
1: They did Through Being Cool, Girl You Want, Beautiful World, where they changed the lyrics. Uh, they changed the lyrics because the lyrics are It's a beautiful world for you, but not for me. And it's uh, they change it to it's a beautiful world uh, for you, I guess, me too. So that it's, uh, they like change the lyrics so that um, they aren't, they're like more kid friendly. Like this was in 2010. (laughs) Um, It's called D.E.V. 2.0, D.E.V. 2.0. Alex, this is why this worked out so well
0: because I could only talk about and write so much about Devo that... Coming in with the kids' corner. Coming in hot
2: on the kids'
0: corner. (laughs) What I was going to (laughs) mention is that, uh, and I'd heard this before because I used to have this LP, or maybe I still do because it was a white elephant gift. Uh, The Chipmunks did Whip It on, uh, on Chipmunk Rock. There are a number of music journalists that have... Uh, described Whippet as a cornerstone of the development of new wave music in the early 80s. Not that new wave hadn't existed yet, because it did, and it was getting popular, but this was one of the songs that introduced heavily synthesized music to a mainstream audience. So maybe not even just new wave, but electronic music in general. This was an instrumental song in the I that, yeah. American pantheon. Um, the other thing is that uh, the majority of New Wave music in the early 80s was British bands. And uh, around this time, it was really just like Devo and the B-52s that were doing, speaking of uh, Athens, Georgia. Uh, I think I always that thought that this
2: band was British. That's why I was surprised that they came I from totally,
0: I totally get why you would think that. That does make sense. Back to uh, uh, the 33 and a Third book, uh, Nagy writes, unlike artists who grow to hate their biggest hit, See Robert Plant, and Stairway to Heaven. Devo, Don't Begrudge Whippet, it, its iconic status, though they would have liked more of their songs to achieve it. And Gerald says, I'm glad it was Whippet it, because it was certainly twisted and original. Those are hallmarks of Devo that you expect something different or witty or twisted a little off. It has all that. And it came from a good place. It came from a pure, creative, open collaboration. And that's, to me, when all the best stuff comes. So they have not shied away from their their one big radio hit. They they certainly have other songs that are that are uh that were influential and that we all know now, but like their one big touchstone, you know, uh, yeah, whip it. I know whip it. They'd hear whip it, they know it. That Vice article that was written by Andrea Dominic. Um I like what she had to say about about this that like Devo was kind of shorthand for like cheesy 80s new wave and like what people thought about right away, but it was really just so much deeper than that. And she said, to dismiss Devo as nostalgia compilation fodder is to overlook a body of work that feels present in both style and substance, rife with critiques of consumerism, right wing ascendance, Midwestern paternalism, corporate monoculture, and geopolitical hysteria. Nearly 50 years later, the band's story plays out like an uncanny harbinger of today's post Trump sur- surreality something Mother's Boss sees flashes of even in the most unexpected corners of contemporary life. And Casale, in the Consequence of Sound interview, said, times are even more devolved than we could have even projected ever. And he said that mere four days before the 2020 election. Oof.
2: What a very unhop- hopeful way to end the podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we still have to talk about where they're at now. But yes, that is the... That's the Whippet story
2: again. I, like, Debo is a blind spot for me. I don't think I knew that Mark Mothersbaugh was in Debo. Oh, I know is Mark Mothersbaugh. Like a, <laughs> I, I, I never connected the two. I just knew him <laughs> as like Where an amazing are composer. You from? So when you said his name, I was like, oh, I know him. And I never, I just Debo is a blind spot. Uh,
1: yeah, I, so I feel like
0: it. Alex. Did you hit yourself in the head with the? Uh, I'm, I'm losing that. my
1: mind. I feel like. I feel like he, he like exploded into the public consciousness of people who are not into Devo when he recorded the Rugrats theme. And it's been, it's been yes. ever since then, he's just been, I mean, he does amazing. If you listen to, there are a couple of, there are a couple of songs, especially on life aquatic that are very, mm-hmm. they're not Devo, but they're very electronic in a way that <laughs> brings, oh, yeah. brings his Devo oh, yeah. to mind to me a lot. Um, does he do all? Yeah, most so, of it, yeah. I think he's done he everything did, after Bottle Rocket. He did. Um,
0: he did Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, and Life Aquatic oh, with Steve Zissou. I
1: didn't realize he'd only done those
0: four. And interesting that the other half of the Life Aquatic soundtrack is uh, David Bowie songs in Portuguese because yeah, yeah. Devo and Bowie have that deep connection. Devo released six more studio albums after this, most recent in 2010, which I mentioned. Worth a listen. Uh, that was their first in 20 years. Uh, the band reunited again in 2020 for the 30th anniversary of Freedom of Choice, and they've been playing festivals every year since. They played Riot Fest a couple years ago, or maybe last year. Um, they've also been releasing documentary films, books, toys, and they even made a Devo vodka. That's... Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, there's also the Devotional Convention, a Devo fan convention that's held every year, along with the 5K Devo race. So there's a, there's a Devo 5K. Alex, race. have you been... No,
1: no, (laughs) I'm not. First of all, I don't run.
0: Well, you don't have to run to go to the convention. (laughs) Yeah, you go to the
1: convention. They're not on uh, streaming, but there are two albums worth of like pre... of like demos they made before they ever made an album. They're called Hardcore Devo, Volume 1 and 2. And it is some of the crustiest, grittiest, weird... Like, I don't know what... I don't know who... (laughs) Like if it was David Bowie or Brian Eno you know, who were like, you got to get your tempos up because this stuff is so slow. There's even versions of songs that are on their later albums that are just like slow and like the everything sounds like blown out and weird. Uh, I love them with all my heart. So I'm sure they're I'm sure they're they're in their entirety on YouTube. I, I would strongly recommend looking for them uh, because they are a, a fascinating prehistory of a band that you think of as being very very slick and poppy. And fast. (laughs) Uh, They
0: also do it. They have a, a greatest hits collection, but they also have a greatest misses collection, which I find amazing. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Um, So I mentioned that the core lineup remained uh, throughout their entire career. uh, And also Bob Lewis was only in the band for a year. And they, they did have uh, some legal issues because he did come up with part of the concept of Devo. Um, But they put all that behind them. And at the 2017 devotional convention, (laughs) Bob joined the band to perform their early songs for the first time in 40 years, which is a lovely sentiment. Wow. Um, Gisales had some solo projects. We talked about the, the kids' band he helped put together. Uh, he went on to direct music videos for other recording artists, including The Cars, Rush, A Perfect Circle, Foo Fighters. He did the I'll Stick Around video. Soundgarden, uh, he did Blow Up hmm. the Outside World. And then he did the Silverchair videos Freak and Cemetery, which is pretty neat. Wow. Um Bob Mothersbaugh played in a couple more side bands and has contributed to continued <clears throat> to contribute toward film and TV soundtracks over the years sometimes with his brother Mark who as we mentioned is now uh, and has been for a long time an iconic film TV and video game composer in addition to uh, the Wes Anderson films he also scored the Lego movie Thor Ragnarok Rugrats, which we covered, and also Chucky Fenster on Rugrats is based on Mark Mothersbaugh.
1: That makes perfect sense to Uh, me,
0: actually. No way. Clifford the Big Red Dog, Felix the Cat, Pee-wee's Playhouse, Super Mario World, The Powerpuff Girls, Crash Bandicoot, Sims 2, the list goes on of what he's done. And Devo has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame three times, but has missed it. Every time, which I think is so poetic.
1: It couldn't have happened to like a more deserving group to be nominated three times and not get it. That's like Yeah. (laughs) That's like a perfect distillation of their career and of their legacy. Like that's that's totally appropriate. I hope they never get in.
0: Especially because Mark has come out and said we were never meant to be a rock and roll band.
1: Um if I could recommend my favorite one of my favorite pieces of ephemera ever that is Devo related. Um in the mid 90s, there was a group of television or a group of like effect, video effects producers who were like making Nickelodeon spots and stuff. And they decided to make a full motion video game called Duel and Fireman, which was about the city of Chicago being on fire and firemen running around the city uh, doing dance offs. Excellent. Um, it starred Rudy Ray Moore. Sure. Uh, Dolomite as, what, as the main fireman um amazing david yao and steve albedee played the pilots of air force one which accidentally flew into the hancock building causing chicago to catch on fire
0: my mouth is agape right now this is insane um
1: timothy leary is in it tony hawk is in it and uh mark Mothersbaugh makes a brief appearance in it um it never got released it was apparently like a very expensive debacle um a lot of the people who worked on it went on to do other bizarre stuff like i think that one of the main guys was doing like uh tim and eric kind of graphics with tim and eric for a while Mm -hmm. um all that really exists of it is a trailer on youtube but it's like five minutes long oh and and um ivan stang from the church of the subgenius is in it too um and there's nothing i would want more in my life than to be able to play it but i have done a lot of research and interviewed people involved and they said there was Uh, never a playable version of it.
0: (laughs) Alex, if you ever, if you ever come across it, I hope that you remember this conversation and just randomly you're like, Hey, I found that movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the other, the other, uh, thing that I, they were like, it was a total like clusterfuck from day one. They, the thing that they said is like, Oh, they got the Melvins and Boredoms were in it too. And they did a single, they did a single, <laughs> of course. uh, that was supposed to be a promotion for it, like a seven inch single and, uh, boredom's did a song on it, but boredom's were signed to Warner brothers and they weren't allowed to record the song. So then they had to recall the single, but you can also hear the single on YouTube. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's my white way. <laughs>
0: wow. Uh, I have my, I have my, my work jazz. cut out for me for listening and viewing for the next couple of days. That's Whippet. I can't say that's Devo because there's so much more we could have covered, but um, that's Whippet. And you have to tell the whole Devo, I think, at least the beginnings to f- really get what's going on. Whip it. and Theo, I'm so glad that you're, maybe you're a, a Devo convert I, I've now. been
2: schooled today. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to do a deep dive after this. It. It's been great. I'm going to watch uh, USA play in the World Cup and throw Devo that on sounds, the back. Yeah, right. That sounds American exceptionalism. that's enjoyed the day. <laughs> Alex, this was uh, very fun. Thank you for, for joining us here. What a great song,
1: too. It worked out well. Alex, thanks for your help. Yeah. Thanks for having me. How serendipitous I... that you would you would pick a song <laughs> that um that I I feel so strongly about.
0: <laughs> I, I I don't I don't know. I just it's it's uh I actually had a friend suggest it and I was like, Oh, how have we not done Whip It? And I started reading about it. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> Uh, and, and it just, it just went from there. Uh, Alex, is, is there, uh, is there anything you wanted us to talk about that you're up to or
1: anything you want to tell, tell the people about? <laughs> Not yet. Um, uh, you know, I haven't all worked, right. I haven't worked in a while, <laughs> 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 so I'm going to be getting back to work soon. Good for you. If you want to listen to my synthesizer music, I, I have an album out, uh, that's on all streaming platforms. It's called, uh, Isolation 2 and the artist's name is Slow Fawns, like, uh, Fawns like Baby Deer slow f-a-w-n-s um it's named for a sign i saw in the country which was telling me to drive slowly because bongs run across the road (laughs) that's brilliant that's a wrap on this episode of
0: you wanted a hit thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it good luck getting that song out of your head please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out and if you listen on apple write a review but only if it's nice follow us on twitter at ywahpod and let us know what you think Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was research, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.